Well, thank you. Very much my pleasure to be here. Uh, where did Dave Massey go? Okay. I totally forgot to set out books. You want me to bring some books? Uh, yeah, and some of our intimacy books. They're in a box, if you don't mind putting them out. Yeah, yeah I'm a lousy marketer. Excellent. Put them right to work. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know I can do that to Dave. Uh, all the grief he gave me in seminary, so. Never. 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 Okay. Well, thanks for coming. Um, you never know when you address sexuality what's... Who's going to come? But often, uh, it, obviously, this is an area of such felt need, such confusion. Um, I'm just so thankful that God addresses the nitty-gritty issues of life in his word. Um, I hammer my students with that over and over. If we're teaching God's word, we're doing theology in a way that's dry and theoretical and doesn't connect with what happens on Monday morning, we're not doing biblical theology. So this is eminently practical. So thanks for coming. One of our, um, obviously, biggest challenges with this topic is that you and I have never met anyone in our lifetime, nor will we, till the Lord takes us home, whose sexuality is completely healthy. I mean, think about that. Um, There are only two chapters in the Bible, the first two, that describe what God intended and how sexuality was lived out before sin came. So your sexuality and mine is somewhere on the continuum broken. Some in big ways, others in much lesser ways. But um, what a challenge that is for us. Um, One of you mentioned over dinner just and I hear this over and over um, the challenge um, as a single, having never seen a marriage that was really dynamic and intact. I hear that over and over. Um, again, that, that's our struggle. So multiple aspects of our sexuality. Man, where do, where do we get a model? Where, how, does this, how is this supposed to work? As marrieds or singles, either one. Um, turn with me to Genesis 1 and 2. Since we desperately need to know what this looks like in a healthy way, um, I want to just uh, walk us through Genesis 1 and 2. We're not going to hit everything. There's a lot there. Um, Hit some high points. Try to get a picture, um, big picture. What did God intend when he made us sexual beings? And then I want to look a little bit, largely from Genesis 3, uh, at how sin impacts our sexuality, because it does in every way. And then third main thing I want to look at is, okay, in light of one and two, how do we redeem our sexuality? How do we heal where we need to heal? How do we become healthy and live out our sexuality in the ways God intended? So three-point outline. Frank's the expert on communication. Doing doing okay so far? Okay. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. Okay. All right. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't, I'll, I'll read key passages for us. Yeah, maybe I should say just a tiny bit more about me. Um, I've been married for, I should have you guess, it's older, longer than most of you have been on the earth, um, going on 37 years. Yeah, 
I still work out, so. People say, no, you, you can't be that old. Uh, I am. We, we did marry young, uh, 19 and 21. Um, met in high school, my high school sweetheart, and uh, 37 years on. It's not good for man to be alone. I am really thankful uh, for the wife God gave me. We do most of our ministry now. Um, God's allowed us to write a good number of books. Um, we do all of our writing now together. Um, I, I forget how many, 10, 11. Um, and I love doing that. 11 years ago, God led us to start a nonprofit called Many in the Soul. Um, Frank mentioned a little bit about the book. Um, to create resources on abuse, trauma, um, healthy intimacy. Um, so we do that. Slusta was a counselor for about 18 years and focused on trauma. And now she's, we just do, uh, do work to create resources. And it is, is really a delight. Um, so we'll have a few, Frank asked if I'd bring a few books, um, so we'll have some of them back there. Um, if you want to get those, you can. I'm not a salesperson, but the resources would be helpful, um, and we're delighted to offer those. So 15 years as a pastor, I've just had lots of opportunity to walk with people through aspects of sexuality um, in terms of marriage, in terms of counseling, uh, and now for good number of years uh, in aspects particularly of sexual brokenness. Uh, Men struggling with with pornography, sexual addiction, those who've experienced sexual abuse. Uh, In 2007, God took it to a completely new level for us. So when I went, Celeste and I, I went to the Democratic Republic of the Congo for the first time. Some of you may be a little bit aware of what's going on there. The UN calls it the rape rape epicenter of the world, Um, and it is. Uh, more sexual violence there than anywhere on the planet. Um, they estimate half a million, experts uh, say half a million uh, women, not counting children, not counting men, uh, raped every year. Um, and that has done a lot in helping to continue to crystallize my thinking on, okay, given, and we can all, not God obviously doesn't call all of us to the extremes, um, that he has called Celeste and I uh, in places like the Congo. But all of us have certainly seen and experienced ways in which sexuality produces not life, not joy, but pain and shame and harm and sin. So again, all that by way of introduction to Genesis 1 and 2, God obviously being God, He's omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, and future. He knew what humans, what we would do with our sexuality. I mean, rape didn't catch him by surprise, pornography, whatever. And because God is good and he's a God of purpose, he must have had some really good things in mind for our sexuality to have made us sexual beings knowing how we would misuse it. So we'd better take a look at Genesis 1 and 2, try to get a, a read on what, what was God's intention. We, if you're familiar with the text, you know that the first 24 verses, or 25 verses, um, describe the creation, and it's magnificent. Moses just jumps right in in verse 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Moses doesn't give any introduction. He doesn't argue for God's existence. It just jumps right in with this magnificent creation account. 
But it's not until we get to verse 26 um, that we see the pinnacle of creation. I won't go into the exegetical details, but there's a, a somewhat of a formula that um, God led Moses to use through the first 25 verses, um, and it shifts quite dramatically. Um, if you read it in Hebrew, even the verbs, there's a shift. So it's um, a literary way of, of basically when you go to the movie and it's a scary movie and all of a sudden the music changes uh, and you know something really big is about to happen, that, that's kind of the literary way God is working here. Um, just think of it as a, the music score that's changed grammatically. Um, so it's really clear in verse 26 that for all the beauty of this creation that several times God has pronounced good, he saw what he made and it was good, saw what he made and it was good, verse 26 it's elevated. It's elevated because now it's the creation of humans. So verse, uh, I'll just read 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man, humans, in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I'll stop there. Theologians rightly say that um, in this creation account, six six days of creation in, in all these different categories, heavens, celestial bodies, the earth, plants, mammals, the fish, everything. Humans are are the the pinnacle of everything God created. It's only when we get to creation of humans that God introduces this image of God idea. I have the privilege of teaching a whole course on uh, that, that covers the doctrine of anthropology, and it's, it's a fairly complex one, and I won't go into those kind of details. I just want to focus on this because this is when God makes us, gives us as humans our sexuality. Um, it's right here. God said, let us make humans, man, humans in our image. And then in verse 27, God created man in his, his own image, created them male and female. So obviously he's creating gender, sexuality. Um, and I should note that the language here in Hebrew uh, is rather unabashed. Uh, the, the terms that are used in Hebrew for male and female, uh, zakar, nekebah, literally mean piercer and one pierced, which kind of real at that. That sounds kind of graphic. I, I point that out uh, simply to note God is very unembarrassed about making us sexual beings in his very image, uh, creating us male and female. He did it, and he, he doesn't, uh, even in the very language that's inspired here by the Holy Spirit, um, God doesn't kind of sanitize the fact that as having gender includes the ability 
to procreate, the ability to engage in a sex act, and even our, our anatomy related to maleness, femaleness, he emphasizes that. Uh, the sex act is absolutely not all there is to our sexuality, but again, the big picture here is God created the whole package, and he is completely, um, if you will, unapologetic about it. Um, it. It is right there. So let's press a little bit more. Um, so, so why did he do this? What, why gender? I think we have a huge, huge uh, inference in verse 26 that really helps us begin to get a beat on this. We see in verse 26, when God creates, that we have plural pronouns. Then God said, let us make humans in our image after our likeness. Now that is really unexpected. Up to this point, it's singular. In fact, within um, Old Testament um, theology, one of the and, and one of the pivotal um, aspects of teaching about God is that there is one God. Right? It's it's the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the other pagan nations that were polytheists uh, that taught there's multiple deities. But here we have a plurality. Let uh, us and our. Um, well, that's unexpected. Again, God's one. Many theologians, and I think they're, they're right on this, um, would argue that what God is indicating to us here is that he is a God in relationship. Now, some would say, well, this is God speaking to the angels. Uh, that's, that's a very... Uh, typical, if not traditional, Jewish understanding. A um, couple problems with that. Nowhere in Scripture do we have any indication that angels are made in the image of God. Furthermore, there's nowhere in Scripture that indicates that angels participated in creation. We know from Job that they sang at creation. They worshiped when God created humans and the earth. Um, but Scripture never tells us that angels were part of the hand of God to create it makes a lot more sense grammatically as, and, and in the fuller teaching of scripture um, to say this is an indication and not that God used angels to create uh, and there are other suggestions I don't need to go into. I think it makes the most sense that God is not giving us a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity here but he's indicating there's, there's relationality within God's own being. Now, in the fuller picture of Scripture, Christians have understood that as the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, But we have to get a whole lot more Scripture to get that, Father, Son, Spirit. It's really developed in the New Testament. Um, So the the hint is just here that God's in relationship. So isn't it interesting that when God, who's apparently there's a plurality, three persons, Creates in his image. Image and likeness are not identical terms, but I think they're mutually defining. They're very, very similar. And when he creates beings that that mirror him, he makes them what? Male and female. I mean, do, do you get the, the picture? God's in relationship. He creates in his image, 
And he cre- that image is reflected not just with an individual, but with gender, and there's two. We all understand um, as adults that our sexuality, man, I can literally remember <laughs> the day, I don't know the date, but I can remember the day and the place that, and I was 12 years old, that girls went from being a, a royal pain to be avoided at all costs to whoa. <laughs> I mean, I re- in fact, it was about a mile from here um, there was a big shopping mall, Thomas Mall, that no longer exists, um, just less than a mile from here. Um, I was having lunch with my mom, and there was another 12-year-old girl, or she looked to be about my age, and you know from junior high, you do that thing where I don't, I don't see you, <laughs> I don't see you, um, and, and I was very fixated on her. That, that literally was the moment, I guess, that the hormones finally kicked in, um, and it's pretty much been the same from that day on in the sense that I think God did a really good work when he made the other gender. <laughs> really good work. 37 years ago, he gave me a wife that I adore. Um, but I wouldn't have been drawn to Celeste the way I was if we didn't have different genders. I mean, I have lots of friends with other guys, male friendships, some really close ones. But you know, um, there's gender brings an absolutely unique dynamic into our world, and and it's not just with the opposite sex. If if there weren't two genders, I wouldn't have the same kind of relationship with other men. The fact that there are two genders. With both directions create some unique dynamics in, in, a, in a good, healthy way, um, in ways that we can't even fully express. Um, bit of a challenge even trying to articulate that. But I think you're with me. I think you understand. Um, the fact that God made us gendered beings, male and female, um, absolutely clearly gives us a capacity and a longing for relationship for closeness. Doesn't that make sense? If God's a God in relationship, that he makes us relational beings, it really makes sense. I mean, when you just think about the, uh, the logic of it, and God is certainly logical in that sense. And, and again, from the fuller revelation of Scripture, um, we see that God is in perfect intimacy for all eternity in his own divine being. I had the tremendous privilege and stewardship of many years of training, Bible school, seminary, doctoral work, uh, and I had sat through many lectures on the Trinity. Some of them were rather theoretical, and it's, you know, you get done, like, okay, so what? Um, But I have really come to embrace and love the doctrine of the Trinity because it helps me understand who my God is. And, and the more I study it, the more I realize that the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity is the, is the idea of intimacy. That God is in an eternal love relationship in his own divine being, Father, Son, and Spirit. Remember when, for instance, early in the book of Matthew, I think it's chapter three, 
Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Comes out of the water and there's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit descends uh, on his shoulder, or a, a dove, symbolizing the presence of the spirit. That's one of many pictures of the Trinity we have in the New Testament. But, but notice it's, it's one of intimacy. Um, and often when we hear intimacy, we think sex. No, intimacy is about relationship. Sex is only one part of it. Intimacy is knowing and being known at the deepest level and loved unconditionally. That's essentially what intimacy is. So the sex act as God ordained in marriage is, is a phenomenal expression of that. But we can have intimacy without sex. Trinity is in an intimate, for all eternity, intimate relationship. Um, so again, Father, Son, and Spirit are intimate. And it's not just an intimacy of working together, though we certainly have that. Um, they work together in re- creation, in redemption, etc. Um, you know, you think of salvation, um, the Father elects, it's the Spirit who regenerates, it's the Son who died, each member working together. We, we certainly have that. But it's even more than that. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in their very being one. Now we read in John 17, and maybe I should read it. Um, it's, it's relevant. And then we'll get back to uh, Genesis. That in their very being, they're one. And this is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer um, the night before his betrayal and crucifixion. He's with his disciples. Uh, he prays regarding his followers, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he goes on, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Do you hear the beautiful language of intimacy there? The Father and the Son are one, and it's, he goes so far as to describe it as I am in you and you are in me. That's more than oneness of purpose, but that their very being is of oneness. The, the early church uh, fathers described this, they, had a, they coined a, a term for this, uh, perichoresis, and, and it literally means a mutual indwelling. Some have described it as the divine dance, that literally the Father can't exist apart from the Son, Spirit, etc. That They indwell each other. Uh, figure that one out. That's, that's beyond our ability to, to comprehend, isn't it? But that almost sounds like sexual language. And I, I, that's because, again, sexuality is at its core about intimacy of relationship. You don't have to have the sex act to have that. So that John 17, among many passages, shows us that all intimacy comes from God. First of all, he's intimate in his own being for all eternity in a love relationship. But then from God comes humans, he's the creator, 
and he gives us the ability to be intimate first with him and then with each other. So that takes us back to Genesis. So he creates in his image and right away we see he created in his image male and female. Now notice the very first command in God, verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, you can't do that apart from sexual intimacy. So our sexuality and even the sex act, again, is related to our being in the very image of God. Now, God isn't a sexual being, but again, it's about relationship because in that act, we, we are able to create life and that life is in the image of God. So again, there's relationship. What a beautiful concept. Now let's move to Genesis 2. It, it, very typical of, of the Hebrew way of thinking that you ex- tell a story, the bigger picture, and then you go back and tell it again with a little more detail. And that's what Genesis 2 gives us. Um, liberal scholars love to find contradictions all over scripture. I did my PhD at a university in England and I had to swim in this pool for a long time. And uh, no, God's word is very, goes together. It's not full of contradictions. And there's no reason to see Genesis 2 as contradicting Genesis 1. It's simply unpacking it. So in Genesis 1, it's the summary account. Genesis 2, now Moses goes back and breaks it down. Okay, we start with Adam. So he explains that Adam was created first. God put Adam in the garden to care for it. And then in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed, had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I'll skip down to verse um, 23. God puts Adam to sleep, creates the woman, gives the woman to the man. Uh, Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's, that is just incredible. A couple points to make here. God, being all wise, gave Adam a little assignment. I know that this is before sin and, and there's perfection, but maybe even in the Garden even Eden, men were a little slower. At least sometimes we are at this point in human history. So God gives Adam what I would call a didactic assignment. In other words, there, there's a purpose here. God could have named the animals himself. Gives Adam the task of naming the animals. I would love to know how long it took 
As he's, okay, we'll call those the zebras. Okay, we'll call those the, the doves. Okay, we'll call those the chickens. Okay, we'll call the elephant. I like that name. Okay, that's the elephant. You know, how, how long before it hit Adam? Oh, there's two there, two there, two there, two there. Wait a minute. One. We don't know. But somewhere along the line, Adam put it together. Um, it's interesting that this is, of course, a perfect creation. There's no sin. There's no imperfection whatsoever. End of Genesis 1, God looked at everything he had made and saw that it was very good. And he only says very good when he creates the man and the woman in his image. But in verse 18, he says something's not good. How can something not be not good in a perfect creation? when there's no sin and no imperfection and no curse. That's a little hard, isn't it? Like, how could it be not good? It's not good because it's not all that God intended. God didn't create humans to be in isolation. So, says I will make him a helper fit for him. And that's a verse that many of us are familiar with. Uh, the, the Hebrew prepositional phrase I love there um, that's sometimes translated suitable uh, or, or fit, it, it's, you could translate it literally from the Hebrew corresponding to. Uh, the idea, as one um, Hebrew scholar put it, um, the idea is that I will create a woman who will fill in the gaps in the man, complement in that way. You, you will, you're, you're going to be different and so you'll be different in ways where you can complement each other. And hence, there's a, a wholeness in what? Relationship. How beautiful. And Adam gets the point when God gives him this wife, and um, it's a real, uh, in Hebrew, a, a note of exaltation, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That's actually covenant language. Um, so it's, it is a, marriage is a covenant, and, and this is covenant language. And then, as many of you know, this chapter ends um, with this statement of the two becoming one flesh and the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. If you do a study of the word naked in Scripture, you'll find that this is the only time the Hebrew word here for naked is used in a positive way. That's amazing. And it's not because there's something um, inherently shameful about nakedness. Read the Song of Solomon and you'll see that real quickly. God's not, there's nothing shameful in in a marriage context about nakedness. But we see in Genesis 3 that sin creates shame so that our, our sexuality, we're not able to live out apart from a work of God in ways that give life, uh, that don't, don't create shame. It's interesting in Hebrew the, the verbs here, the tenses, that they were, they were naked, it's a reflexive uh, idea in Hebrew, uh, emphasizing naked before each other, uh, and it's, uh, um, the, the tense here suggests ongoing action. In other words, this is what they had known from the beginning. From the time God put them together, all they had known is not being ashamed um, and complete openness. That's what God intends in our relationships. Again, not that there has to be a, a, a physical nakedness, but that there, God made us as humans for intimacy 
so that we're known by others and there's an acceptance and there's not a hiding, there's not a holding back. Now, depending on the nature of the relationship, of course, there's levels of intimacy and marriage should be the most intimate and, and that's where the sex act comes in as the, the bonding and expression of that. Um, but what a magnificent description of what God wants for humans that there is this closeness and sharing that's, that's experienced at the deepest level uh, in marriage, at least at a sexual level, and it creates life. It's all about intimacy. That's what God intends for humans, and that's one of the biggest ways we mirror him is in our relationships. So then we get Genesis 3. And you know what happens in Genesis 3. God tells them, don't eat the fruit. They eat the fruit, first thing they do, they hide in the bushes from God, they put on fig leaves to hide from each other. So this, this leads us to, okay, big idea of God creating us with gender, making us sexual beings, is it gives us the capacity and longing for intimate relationship with both genders. When sin comes into the world, it disrupts intimacy. So that our sexuality is not, doesn't produce life and joy, pleasure, closeness. It tempts us to hide, to take, to throw each other under the bus, uh, to feel shame. So um, again, immediately after they sin, they hide in the bushes from God. That's like the ultimate futile exercise, isn't it? Um, like, God can't see me because I'm under the bush. Um, but, but then, if that's not enough, they put on fig leaves to cover their genitals from each other. You don't want to think too long and hard about this, but have any of you felt a fig leaf? I had a fig tree once. <laughs> okay, hey, this is inspired by God, okay? I'm not making this up. Um, specifically, it says a fig leaf. Um, it may be that at least some commentators have suggested they chose a fig leaf because at least in biblical times, uh, in, in the ancient Near East, the fig tree would have had the largest leaves. Now, of course, we don't know if the Garden of Eden had the exact same trees that are in ancient Mesopotamia, but the point is, big leaves. So if you feel shame, you want to cover up as much as you can, even if it is painful. Fig leaf is like sandpaper. You know, that's why you don't want to think too long about this. Um, but this is the text. So we want to get the implications that are staring us in the face. When sin comes, it will cause us to express our sexuality and feel regarding our sexuality shame that will drive us away from others that will make us want to cover up, that will do the absolute opposite of everything God intended, that our sexuality would bring closeness, um, unity, um, sharing, no shame, joy. So, no, and, and there's no sex act here, but again, our sexuality is much bigger than the sex act. Um, it's all that we are as a male or a female. Uh, it's the whole package. Um, the sex itself and the genitals are just a narrower aspect of that. But it's fascinating to me that even though this has nothing to do, that the sin had nothing to do with sex, 
the first thing they did toward each other when they sinned was cover their genitals, and, and yet they're a married couple. Do you see how immediately and thoroughly sin impacts our sexuality, even if the sin is not even about sex? That only makes sense if our sexuality, again, is about intimacy broadly. Because if that's the case, then when there's sin, that's, I don't want you to know who I really am. I don't know that you'll accept what's there. We've got to hide from each other. So, in a nutshell, what happens to our sexuality when sin comes? It gets expressed in ways that create harm because, of course, Adam and Eve blame each other. Well, Adam actually blamed God um, and, and the woman. woman blamed the snake. So, um, but it's about alienation, and, and our sexuality doesn't create oneness. We can see that in every aspect of, of sexual sin, um, how it's really a short-circuiting of healthy intimacy. Think of pornography, for instance. Um, I worked for about eight years. I did groups for men struggling with sexual compulsion, and I was amazed how many of those men were married, and they would even say that their, their problem with pornography wasn't that their wives had no interest in sex. But pornography, but see, if you're going to have a healthy sexual relationship with your wife, you got to talk and share and tell her about your day and listen and be patient. But with pornography, you don't have to mess with any of that. You just look at Miss November on the internet and take care of yourself. It short circuits the whole process of real intimacy because that, that takes a lot of energy and time and risk and exposure, even in marriage. Um, so we see that with pornography. Obviously, we see it with, with promiscuity. Um, you might think in terms of the biblical language, I, I skipped over this. Beginning of Genesis 4, when Adam has sexual relations with Eve, it says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. What a beautiful way to describe sex and marriage, knowing each other. It's not because God is too embarrassed to say they had sexual intercourse. <laughs> That's it's real clear, again, because of the words he used for male and female. It's because the sex act is about so much more than bodies coming together. It's bodies and souls. You remember what Okay, so that's in a proper context. It's a knowing. It's a sharing of souls. It's, it's full intimacy. Do you remember what David did with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11? Doesn't say he knew her. Says David lay with Bathsheba. And often when in the Old Testament it's describing sexual sin, that's, that's the description. So-and-so lay with so-and-so. Um, think of the difference between knowing someone and simply laying with them. Again, what, th- what that's saying to us is Satan wants to, to short-circuit God's I- intention of deep intimacy and, and do a bait-and-switch where we, we think we get the pleasure when obviously um, the sex act can be incredibly pleasurable, Satan says, you don't have to take the risk, make the commitment. You can, have, you can have all the benefit 
without that sacrifice. So it's not knowing, it's just laying with. And so we have promiscuity. And of course, in our culture, we have hookups, all that goes with it. I should probably mention homosexuality. That's, that's relevant here. As we think of, of, of how God's intention goes astray, um, I, I won't defend the fact that uh, Scripture teaches homosexual practice is not acceptable before God. Um, Frank can do one of those lessons. I mean, there, there are six or seven key texts, um, Romans 1 being the most extensive, that make that really clear. And, and I know I'm speaking to a very biblically oriented church, so I don't think I have to argue that. But why would God say that? I mean, what's wrong with, if, if there's commitment and love? I live in Portland much of the year. <laughs> Portland is a really, really, really gay-friendly city. Um, so this is a part of our regular conversations in our church. Um, goes back to Genesis 2. There's, there's not the complementation God intended, um, even at an anatomical level. Fill in the gaps. Make, I'll make him a wife, a woman, corresponding to him. As it relates to the sex act and, and marriage, God's intention is that there is a complete complementation that again will deepen intimacy. Um, I have great compassion for the gay community. Very involved with uh, various individuals in Portland um, at a friendship level, at a discipleship level who wrestle deeply um, with same-sex attraction. But one of the things I've come to see is that, um, and and secular research even bears it out, we, we will hear about these long-term committed relationships in, in the gay, lesbian community. They're incredibly rare. Um, levels of promiscuity are extremely high. There's actually a serious academic debate in the secular community about whether there, there can be such a thing as monogamy. Um, really rare. Well, again, there are exceptions, but... Um, that doesn't produce the kind of long-term stability, fidelity that God intended. So we could just think of each, each kind of sexual sin that God prohibits in Scripture, and at its core, we don't have time to go through all of them, but just think conceptually. At its core, it will circumvent true intimacy. So, final point. <laughs> so where do we go with this? In a nutshell... We redeem our sexuality, we build sexual health when we become more intimate with God and each other. And that may sound really simplistic, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually, there's a whole, whole lot there, more than we'll get to tonight, but I want to at least put that seed thought in your mind. As we grow in intimacy with God and each other, our sexuality will become healthier and healthier. It will be redeemed more and more. Equally, whether we're married or single, we all need relationships. We're made for relationships. Take us out of healthy relationships, again, single or married, we will not grow spiritually. We will not grow personally. Bad things happen in a nutshell. That's why we have all these magnificent New Testament commands, love uh, the one another commands, love one another, share your burdens with, with one another. Um, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Same kind of idea. Um, over and over, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, James 5. Um, 
That's about intimacy in the body of Christ. And that's not in a marriage context. Um, as we grow in intimacy with each other, begin to lift away shame. Get healthier and healthier in, in accepting who God made us to be as a man, as a woman. Um, non-erotic needs are met. So there's a sense of, of, of full, fullness inside of us. So we're much less susceptible to Satan's sexual temptations when we have healthy uh, non-erotic relationships in the body of Christ that, that fills something in our soul that we need, we're made for, um, that Satan, again, would like to seduce us into fulfilling those completely God-ordained longings uh, in ways that, that hurt us. Um, but ultimately, it starts with growing in intimacy with Christ. Um, he's the only one at the end of the day who can fill our soul. Um, as we do that, our, our, our sexuality, where it needs to be corrected, where it needs to be healed, uh, that begins to happen. It's in, in obvious ways, think of sexual shame. Uh, we all have things in our past that all of us, even, even if it's not the you know, promiscuity, etc. cetera. Um, in, a, in a fallen world, there are things for all of us related to our sexuality that we really wouldn't want other people to know about. There, there's a sense of some shame. Only God can take away shame. God's the only one who can pronounce forgiven. It's only God, Psalm 103, um, who can remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. Remember them no more. So as I go, grow in intimacy with him, again, that, that heals sexual shame. That gives me a, um, it fills a part of my soul that I'll be so much less likely to fulfill in illegitimate ways um, sexually with other people. So with God, with others. So I think that's enough for this section. Okay. Frank, let me give you a crack at it. Okay, thanks, Steve. Really appreciate that. I was going to start actually somewhere else uh, until the last comment that Steve made, and I decided to go ahead and start with the point I was going to build to. I'll just start with that, and then I'll back up and tell you how I, how I got there. He said that um, the way to redeem our sexuality is uh, through first intimacy with God and then intimacy with each other. And... Um, True, genuine intimacy comes first from God. This is why when I do like premarital counseling, one of the first things I tell uh, couples is um, you guys are getting married because you think you're going to make each other happy and that that's the primary purpose of that. And, and reality, in reality, that's a secondary um, uh, goal of marriage. Uh, the primary goal is to, for you to come together and seek holiness together and then your happiness will be a byproduct of seeking the holiness first. Because in seeking holiness, you're seeking intimacy with God. And, and essentially what you're trying to do when you're talking about redeeming sexuality is what, what you're trying to redeem it back to is Genesis 2.25. Um, that, is the, that has become the big verse for me. You know, the two were in the, in the garden, they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And, you know, most guys like me that, you know, before I got deep, when I was superficial, this is, you know, last week, um, it, you know, you look at that verse and you go, that's, that's a guy's favorite verse. They were both naked and not ashamed. It can't get better than that, right? Okay. But the physical aspect of that is, is just one little part of that. What, what it really is, is this emotional, 
spiritual intimacy, this authenticity, this vulnerability that we're really trying to get back to. And the only way that's redeemed is by intimacy with God, which can only come in a gospel-centered life and a gospel-centered relationship through the power of the resurrected Christ. So here's my finishing point that I want to start with, and then I'll go back and talk about how I get there. Um, Many of you know my wife, Jackie. We've been married 27 and a half years. Um, I met Jackie when I was 26, and I was not a Christian at the time. And I had lived this other life, this life seeking sexual satisfaction in any way, shape, or form, because I felt like that was going to be the way my life was going to be fulfilled. And then I met Jackie, and um, I... God saved me. That was really important. And then eventually, after a two-year friendship, we began to date. Uh, She was uh, essentially going to marry this other loser guy. And she got rid of him. And and we started dating. And and, uh, one of the conditions of dating was that I wanted wanted to figure out the church thing and the Jesus thing. I had had never been to church. Didn't didn't understand it. Didn't know it, really. And um, I asked her to help walk me through that if we were going to date. And I was the first non-Christian she ever dated. And a few months later, God saved me. Um, In my life, Jackie is the only woman that I have grown in intimacy and desire for over the course of our relationship. The only one. And she's the only one I've ever known as a gospel-centered person. And I've known a lot of different women. And the only difference is that I was seeking intimacy with God in my relationship with Jackie, whereas before I was not. Uh, women were uh, an object to me. They were something that were supposed to fulfill me. They, they were something that, it, it, was, it was that whole idea of I could do whatever I wanted, and they were part of it, and they could do whatever they wanted, and nobody was going to get hurt, but everybody was getting hurt, and nobody was getting fulfilled. And, and I know, and I've had guys actually say this to me. It's a good thing she's not here tonight because she'd get embarrassed about this. But I've had lots, and there's not a few, but a lot of guys say to me, they look at my wife of 27 and a half years and they say, well, Frank, look at her. I mean, I mean how easy would it be for you to continue to, be, to, to have desire for her? Look at her. She's, she's really beautiful. And again, I, I just, I, first of all, I look at them and I say, why are you comparing my wife to other women, first of all? And second of all, second of all, though, though you're, you're missing the point, okay? You're missing the point. I don't find my wife desirable because she's good-looking. I have, I have intimacy with God, which is now leading me to intimacy with Jackie, and that intimacy with Jackie, that gospel-centered intimacy with Jackie, is what is leading me to find her desirable, which is why we now have this kind of marriage where every day I, I get up and I look at her and I say, I can't wait till you're 80 because you get better looking and more desirable every single day. And that's true. That's not, just, that's not just garbage. That's true. It's Proverbs 5. That, that this, this graceful doe, this woman, her, her breasts are going to fulfill you always. Now you say that to somebody who doesn't have a gospel-centered um, approach to life and an intimacy with God, and they're going to go, that makes no sense. She's going to get old and gravity's going to win. That's not going to happen. Right? Right? But it does happen. It does happen when you seek intimacy with God and it's gospel-centered. So let me just go back and take a couple of minutes. Um, 
he hit on the two passages that I just, I, I've grown to love over the last five or six years. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then Genesis 2, 15 through 25, essentially. Um, and, and one of the things that I want to mention about those passages is you see God in those passages as a very generous, a very giving God who, unlike other creation stories and unlike other ancient stories of the relationship between God and humans, the human beings were created in God's image and likeness, number one, and then he gave them stuff for their own good so that they could thrive and they could flourish and they could be culture makers on their own. This is an amazing thing. This is, this is counterculture and, and an anomaly in, in con- comparison to all the other uh, creation um, uh, stories and epics. All the other ones, the human beings are specifically made to serve the gods no matter what, and there's nothing good about that for the humans. It's just that they're to serve the gods. But here, God graciously and generously gives them the creation to then create with. And that's an amazing thing. And then to top it all off, he gives the man this incredible uh, creation of the woman. Um, that, that language where he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, blah, blah, blah. That's actually, you know, Hebrew poetry. I mean, let me, I'm going to mention this in January when we, when we do our series on family. But um, those of you that are married or those of you that are engaged, those of you that um, are in a romantic relationship, the fir- guys, the first time you saw this woman that you're with right now, um, how many of you broke out in poetry impromptu? How many of you did that? Well, that's what Adam did, liar. That's what Adam did. That's what Adam did when he saw Eve for the first time. He was overcome with her beauty. And again, this expresses God's generosity in this. And then that leads them to this covenant and consummation language in 24 and 25. And and let me point out 24. This is also interesting. Verse 24, where it says that the man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. First of all, you understand, again, this idea that there's going to be one woman for the man was completely countercultural because women were seen, again, by all the other cultures, uh, all the other ancient peoples as, as chattel, as second-class citizens, and every guy was supposed to have like, like a harem of women. No, God creates it so that you got one woman, okay? Now, I know that puts a little bit of pressure on you women, and it should, but it, you, this, is, this is now a... An, what we would call an, an, an exclusive relationship. An exclusive relationship. And second of all, the man is supposed to leave his mother and father. In other words, um, the cultural um, mandate that the woman be brought into the man's family is no longer true. The man is now to start his own family and his own life and his own um, two, the two shall become one flesh, the, their own entity the two of them together, their own separate entity. And this is a beautiful thing. And again, it, it depicts the intimacy that God has here. And again, it is an exclusive relationship. And I keep saying that because I want to point this out. In our culture today, along with all of these other new virtues that we're supposed to have, like tolerance and not judging and all of those things, one of the great virtues is that we must be inclusive. We must be inclusive inclusivity is good no matter what no no matter what it means inclusive inclusivity is always better than exclusivity right 
If you're exclusive, you're sinning, you're wrong, you're judgmental, you're intolerant, and you're bad if you're exclusive. Yet this relationship that God creates is specifically exclusive. And he would tell you that your sexual relationships are supposed to be specifically exclusive. Before I met Christ, my sexual relationships were not exclusive. They were what? Inclusive. Inclusivity was good. And it didn't matter what kind it was. It was all good, but it was all broken. And none of it fulfilled. The only one that is ever fulfilled is the gospel-centered, holiness-seeking relationship that I have with my wife. Okay? And, and let me tell you something. Myers has talked about this before, and I love this illustration. He talks about how sexual sin is like a firework, right, that explodes, and it's gorgeous for what, 10 seconds? And then there's what's left? Ash, destruction, you're burned out, nothing good, Okay? Hey, I get that. That was my life for 27 years. That was my life. I was, here you go, I can't go very long without a um, Seinfeld reference. I, I was George Costanza, okay? And if you, if, you know, if you know Seinfeld, you appreciate this. It, it, George's life was lived exclusively by his circumstances. If his circumstances were good and he was getting the women and everything was, was going well for him, he felt like he could be fulfilled. But how long did George's fulfillment ever last? Five minutes at the most, okay? And he would come running into Jerry's apartment and he would say, I've got the date with the woman, Jerry, I'm busting. How, you know, that's George's favorite line. Jerry, I'm busting. I'm busting. How long would George be busting for? He was like a firework that exploded, and then he just fizzled out. And then he would run into Jerry's apartment in the next scene and go, Jerry, what have I done? What have I done? Okay. So I now have this relationship with Jackie where I'm busting all the time. And Jackie would tell you she's busting all the time. Now, do we have arguments and do, is it hard and it's hard? Yeah, all of that is true. But ultimately, there's this incredible environment, constant environment of intimacy and affection. Even when we argue, there's this environment of intimacy and affection that's gospel-centered. We even argue in a gospel-centered way. Because we know that's the most fulfilling and productive way in which to argue. And so we have this environment. Willard Harley describes it this way in one of his books. We have this constant environment of intimacy in which then the special event of intimacy can take place unfettered. And in a, a, in a celebratory, healthy, fulfilling way. It's never been better, y'all. I'm 55 and it's never been better. I'm sorry if some of you are blushing right now, but... Wouldn't you like it to be that way? And that's what the gospel-centered, intimacy-seeking, holiness-seeking relationship can do for you. I've been doing this pastoring thing for 20 years and working with, I I do a lot of marriage retreats. I work with a lot of people who, uh, couples that are in conflict and having sexual problems and all of that. And, and And I need to tell you guys something. I have seen the movie of sexual brokenness a thousand times. I've seen the movie of sexual brokenness a thousand times. And the movie ends the same way every single time. Can't go very far without a Godfather illustration either. How many of you remember Godfather Part 2 at the end of the movie? How many of you have seen it and remember it? If you haven't, you need to see it before this Sunday or you're not getting into church, okay? 
All right, so at the end of Godfather 2, Michael Al Pacino, who's the head of the family now, he's been betrayed by his brother, Fredo, right? Those of you that know the story, what, is, what, what happens to Fredo at the end of Godfather 2? He's assassinated by a couple of the guys that Michael hires out on Lake Tahoe, okay? Godfather 2 movie ends the same way every single time. Fredo gets assassinated. Wouldn't it be odd if somebody walked up to you and said, I'm going to watch The Godfather 2 today, and today I am sure it's not going to end that way. Fredo's going to live. You would look at them and you would say what? You're foolish. You're foolish. It ends with Fredo dying every single time. Sexual brokenness ends the same way every single time. If, if, you're, if you're addicted, like I was, to, my sex, to your sexual brokenness, it's never going to fulfill you the way you're, you're looking for something to fulfill you in a way that, you, that, that it will never fulfill you. The only way that this can be fulfilled and redeemed is in a gospel-centered relationship, seeking intimacy with God and seeking intimacy with each other. And by the way, that relationship needs to be exclusive. Exclusive is good. Dave? Sorry, I took some of your time, so hurry it up. <laughs> Frank, Frank said, uh, Jackie gets more beautiful, and he does too, and I just want to say that's not the case. <laughs> Definitely. Although I've only known you for, a th- I don't know, three years, so I can't say how really relatively ugly you've gotten. But, um, So yeah, I'm going to talk about sexuality and singleness. I... Uh, I turned 30 this year in August, and um, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. I went home to, I'm from Lake Havasu City, and had a great time. Went out on the boat with mom and dad, and um, went wakeboarding, and was much more sore than I anticipated, being 30 and not 20. Um, And just really spent the year kind of leading up to turning 30, um, anticipating with eagerness the, the changing of the, the 20 decade to the 30 decade, which was kind of a shift for me because if you had known me three years ago, I wouldn't have been excited about the prospect of turning 30. I would have been um, kind of ho-hum and, and not grateful at the prospect. Like, you know, uh, I don't, I'm almost 30 and I don't have uh, a girlfriend. Uh, I, I'd actually, this is part of the reason I ended up at Redemption, I was dating a girl, and we split. I was, I was at her dad's church serving and really couldn't remain there because we had split up and ended up here at Redemption and at the same semester was taking biblical sexuality with you, Dr. Tracy. Um, and so I was just really kind of feeling sorry for myself. Like, I don't have a wife, and, you know, I don't have kids, and I'm amounting to nothing, which was a very selfish, very joyless, um, very lame way of handling myself. And... What's unfortunate is that that attitude wasn't surprising for given the culture in which I found myself because the general culture tells us that sexuality, uh, specifically intercourse, is the, the thing to be valued the most. That's where we find ourselves, that intercourse, enjoyed in whatever context, is the thing that we should love the most. And what's frustrating is that that kind of, from the general culture, starts to filter down into the Christian culture. And of course, the Christian culture pushes back on that, typically, um, or should, and, and they wouldn't say that intercourse is the highest value, but um, they would swap that value for marriage. And we know this to be true, that marriage, in, generally, in Christian culture, is the thing which people prize the most. Why? 
be, because there's intercourse, right? Because you get to do it. <laughs> and, and so um, it's, it's frustrating because if doing it is the highest value in life, then single people really kind of get relegated. And um, Christians in general have a hard time making sense of the rest of the Bible. So we look at uh, single people in the Bible and how influential they were and had very, very full lives absent from intercourse. I think of Jesus, right? Our Lord and Savior was single, was single and did not enjoy intercourse. Um, Paul, the greatest missionary and theologian ever, was single. Uh, we, we just, as a church, finished the book of Romans, marched through verse by verse, and what a magnificent picture of the gospel, um, just piece by piece. And that guy, even still, didn't, didn't enjoy what, you know, culture prizes as the most valuable. Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, was single. John the Baptist was probably single. I mean, the guy ate bugs, so, and wore, and wore really inappropriate clothes. Um, and, and historically, all throughout Christian history, um, up until fairly recently, singleness was actually prized above marriage, which is interesting because it switched. But if you look at church history, um, celibacy amongst the monastics, the monks and the nuns, that was, that was the highest value. That was the way that they thought they could achieve um, the most pure holiness. But that's shifted. Celibacy is kind of frowned upon now, and, and marriage is the highest ideal. And so what, what we are tasked with doing as Christians is to not make the mistake of shifting from one end of the spectrum to another that says singleness is the ideal and married people are dumb to, or uh, married people are the ideal and singles are somehow uh, less worthy. And so the, the way we balance this is by acknowledging that the Bible says that singleness and marriage are both really, really good things, but they cannot they must not be made into ultimate things. So again, this is kind of my central point for, for what I'm going to say. The Bible makes it clear that singleness and marriage are both good things, but they cannot be made into ultimate things. Unfortunately, what happens, sometimes people will push back and they'll say, no, um, singleness really is a bad thing, right? Genesis 2.18, it's not uh, good for man to be alone. And I've always found that kind of unhelpful. And as I was reviewing to, to do this, I was actually looking through your notes from the biblical sexuality class that I took. And I'm going to quote, I'm going to read a quote that you said um, that interacts with that statement of, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. And, and then that, that is kind of applied to all single people everywhere. Dr. Tracy says this. He says, Genesis 2.18 is not a global statement intended to apply to every human being. Rather, it is an explanation for the institution of marriage in the context of a world which only animal companions were available for Adam. Therefore, it's an unwarranted leap to move from the it is not good for man to be alone, Adam needing a wife, to the modern application of it's not good for man to be alone, fill in the blank. Like, it's not good for David Massey to be alone. Um, he, yeah, so... Dr. Tracy's saying you can't just make that jump from because Genesis says that it doesn't necessarily apply to to everyone. Why? Because sexuality, as Dr. Tracy said, is more than just genital activity. It's it's more broad. It's everything in who we are. It encompasses everything. And God wants us to honor him in that, in everything that we do. Um, If we limit sexuality to genital activity, then we're forced to face this question of, well, then how can, how can singles uh, 
express their sexuality. If the only way they do that is through um, intercourse or through genital activity, then there is no way for them to express uh, their sexuality. But God made us whole persons and not just people to enjoy physical intimacy, but to enjoy relational, social, spiritual intimacy with all people. So I want to kind of ask that question. How can uh, singles enjoy sexual, express their sexuality? And I have five points. So the first one, um, they can rejoice in the redemptive plan of God. Again, they can rejoice in the redemptive plan of God. Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then promised to return. And this promised return leaves all Christians singles and married people alike longing for him to come back anticipating his return Long, like, almost fasting for that that consummation to happen our hearts long for this and single people can identify this especially well because there's a deep sense where they're they're kind of longing for companionship but they can rejoice in the fact that Jesus is alive and that he promised to come back to set all things to right and for true and, and full intimacy to be experienced in that context. So that's the first, first way. Second way is through wise romance. And you guys talked about just dating relationships and um, you contrasted some unhealthy with healthy. Wise romance in the context of a Christian dating another Christian is one way for singles to express their sexuality within wise boundaries. And the first of those boundaries, obviously, is that a Christian has to date uh, another Christian. Uh, Over Thanksgiving break, I was home in Lake Havasu, and we had 20 or so family members at my mom and dad's house. And my aunt brought up, you know, hey, do you have a girlfriend? I said, no. And she goes, well, why? And I just said, I'm not sure. I'm kind of busy right now, you know, whatever. And, um, (laughs) yeah, it made me feel great. Thanks, Aunt Carrie. Um, Anyways, she's not a believer, but um, she was saying, well, what, what is, what's on your list? And I said, well, they, they have to love Jesus, like, a lot. And she said, well, why? Why does that matter? And I said, because that's the center of my life. And if that's not the center of their lives, it's not going to work. And she was going, no, that's not true. And I said, no, actually it is. Um, <laughs> and so I tried to break it down. And it, just on a, on a simple kind of practical level, I wasn't saying... I'm better than a girl that's not a Christian. But on a practical level, if, if Jesus is the center of my heart, um, and I'm dating a girl who doesn't find Jesus at the center of her heart, one of two things will happen. Either, and this is a helpful way Tim Keller has broken it down, he said, either Jesus will get pushed to the peripheral, and she will become the center of my heart, which is not ideal, or she will get pushed to the peripheral and Jesus will remain the center of my heart, which is also not ideal. And so it just doesn't, long term, it's not functional. So that's the first kind of parameter for wise romance. The second one is just using wise boundaries in um, how to conduct yourselves. A third way that single Christians can express their sexuality is through quality, wholesome friendships. Dr. Tracy made the point that intimacy is is, uh, knowing and being known. It's not just genital activity, but it is through non-erotic relationships that singles can enjoy life with other people and really, really feel loved and valued. And this happens primarily in the Christian community through the church and through small groups. And so um, as the guy that leads small groups, I just want to say you should be in a small group. Um, They're they're called RCs. If you want to get plugged in, come talk to me. Um, But more seriously, for, for those of you that are married, 
This means being mindful of uh, singles who are within the church community that you can spend time with. I know, personally, I've been really, really blessed by some of you that are married that I've spent time with. I think of um, Josh and Rachel Prather. Uh, you know, they, I'll go out to dinner with them, or I'll spend time with the Mortensons' kids and their family. Um, I see Maria smiling because they're the cutest kids ever. Um, even, even Frank's wife, Jackie, I was like, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Do you need to come over to our place? Do you have a place? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Did you know that she invited me over? I wish she was here. I like her more than you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, s- singles spend time with, with married couples and seek them out. Don't just wait for married couples to find you, but seek them out because we can learn a lot from them. There's a lot of value in, in watching how you guys interact and how you love your family. Fourth way is um, quality time with mom and dad. This is a, not, a, not a normal thing that we think of when we want to, as, as people, express our sexuality well, but spend time with mom and dad. Why? Because through sexual activity, they made us. And there's something about uh, spending time with mom and dad where you go, well, it's just the obvious. Like, we don't believe in the stork, do we? <laughs> um, sp- spending time with mom and dad is, is helpful because uh, they love us, we love them, and, and they're the ones that, that raised us. That's, that's, a, that's another healthy way. And then lastly, this is sort of random, but I think there's some level of truth to it. It's um, in... G- well, no, 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 just listen, just listen. Um, enjoying the physical gifts that God gives us through exercise and through health. I don't think there's anything intrinsically sexual about that, but there is something good about the way uh, our bodies react physiologically to exercise and to wellness. So those are kind of five things. Through those, and and probably more, but those are just the ones I wanted to give, uh, a Christian person can come to a place of deep, relational, uh, true joy. And again, I'll drive this home. The Bible says that singleness and marriage are both really, really good things, but they cannot be made into ultimate things. Why? Because the only ultimate thing that we can enjoy is a deep-rooted relationship with Christ, where the intimacy is experienced in a number of different ways, some of which I I mentioned, but with a deep trust uh, for him. So thanks, guys, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, David. That was awesome, wasn't it? That was just absolutely terrific. Um, Sorry I took some of your time. That was really, really good, David. Appreciate it. Thanks for doing that. Um, So we have seven minutes. We need to uh, get our kids um, so that the uh, uh, child care workers can go home at eight. So we only have seven minutes. I didn't ask Steve if he could do this, but he's going to do it anyway. If, he'll stick around after for a little while if you want to ask him some more questions. Maybe talk to him about his books. But um, if there are any quick questions right now that you might want to throw at us, otherwise uh, we're going to break in about five minutes. Cody? Oh, you got him on the screen. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, some within the therapeutic community seem to treat sexual abuse as part of a person's past that will always wield a certain negative influence over their ability to freely respond to their spouse. It's assumed to be a defining feature of one person that can't help but hold a marital bed hostage. In your observations, do you believe any person that wants to, uh, wants to can find victory over whatever past abuse or promiscuous experiences they've had through the power of the cross? Obviously, this is a question for you, David. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, 
The answer is yes. Let me elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Um, just real quickly, I think it's important to acknowledge because our sexuality is so profoundly personal and the sex act is so powerful, sexual abuse may have been 40 years ago, but that doesn't mean because it was 40 years ago we should just get over it and not impact us today. Uh, There is no such thing as casual sex. There's casual sex like there's casual dynamite. Um, It can be used for good purposes or bad, but it's powerful, intrinsically. Um, In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that when we sin, and it's context of temple prostitution, that um, he says when we sin with our, our body sexually, that's unlike anything else we do with our body. It's a, there's a unique mystical bonding that takes place and you really, that's related to the impact of sexual abuse. So I do want to emphasize that. It doesn't, the effects don't just go away. And, and of course, it's very typical that uh, no matter how long ago it was, that'll get played out in the marriage in some harmful ways. Absolutely, the cross is about redemption. That's, our ministry is built on that because that's what scripture teaches. Uh, I, my first book, Many in the Soul, and there are some copies back there, uh, unpacks that. Uh, the last third of the book is about how we can find healing uh, through the cross. So absolutely. Um, but it really does go back to what I said earlier about redeeming our sexuality comes through building intimacy with God and each other. Um, God's the one who helps, who takes away shame. But with something like sexual abuse, of course we, we need to get a sense that God loves us and, and he takes away our shame, but there's also a sense of shame toward others. That's what I love about small groups. Uh, our ministry, in terms of helping people with, with abuse trauma, is uh, largely centered around small groups where people who have experienced abuse meet together for a couple months, share together, share their stories with each other, pray together, um, and that's really body life. That helps heal. So that, that's a, a quick version, but absolutely through the cross. Okay, another one? So what is the problem biblically with living and sleeping with a partner in a heterosexual relationship? You want yeah, me to do ahead. that one? Uh, because God designed the sex act to be in, God, ha- God cares about our sex life more than we do. One of Satan's biggest lies is that he, he doesn't care about it, so I better take care of it myself. No, he created it. Of course he cares about it. But the author knows the best way for it to be expressed and enjoyed and lived out. So um, God knows that's, that sexual intimacy is healthiest in a lifetime covenant relationship. That's where it's not just otherwise, it so quickly as Frank shared from his own past, it so quickly evolves into taking and using. But when there's a lifetime covenant relationship, that changes the dynamics entirely. Uh, My wife has a genetic disorder. She just had her 26 or so surgery. we go sometimes months with no sexual intimacy 
because of surgeries and whatnot. The beauty of God's plan is we're married for life. I love that woman as much as life itself. And you're right, Frank, it gets better. I'll pit our sex life against anyone's. Amen. Um, it should get better every year. It really should. But you're also right, David. And you're older than I am. By two years. Yeah, yes. okay. Yes. <laughs> Think of it as just added maturity. Um, but David's right. It's, it's not the ultimate. Um, yeah. But it's a beautiful part of marriage. But when a lifetime-long covenant, okay, so, so for the next month or more, because of a surgery, there can be no lovemaking. I love that woman no less. And when we can express it physically, we will. But it, the relationship's there. There's a security in that. And you, apart from a marriage covenant, there's not that kind of security. It's not what God intended. Um, this goes to a, a disordering of the created order. Uh, God is the creator. He knows how everything works. And so when we, when we uh, view sex this way, when we say, why can't we put the cart before the horse? We're disordering the created order the way God says it works best, the way he intended it to work best so that we would have the most fulfillment. And so that's why there's a problem with it. He, uh, Steve said it's within the confines of a covenant-committed relationship. When you read through... Um, Genesis 1 and especially Genesis 2, 24 and 25, what you recognize is that the commitment and the covenant come before the oneness. That has to come first so that the oneness brings about the intimacy and the vulnerability that it was intended to. So you, you, I know lots of people who live together and, and, and all of that stuff, and they think that somehow they've, they've achieved... Well, the best possible outcome that they can with their sexual relationship. And a lot of them are going, really, this is it. It's kind of fun for a couple of months, but now it's gotten quite routine. There's nothing routine about my marriage for 27 and a half years with Jackie, nothing at all routine about that. And yet I talk to people who have lived together for six months and they're kind of bored with it at this point. And the reason is because they got it out of order. They have disordered the created order. I think that's a big deal. And, and until, you exact, until you press into that and live that way, I don't think you have a right to criticize it. And a lot of people who have never tried it criticize it without ever trying it. So try it and give it, give it your best shot, like with Jesus and for the rest of your life, and then, and then we'll talk, Okay. All right. It's eight o'clock. I re- we really need to release parents to be able to get um, their kids. I'm sorry. I know it's sex. We could talk until midnight. So, uh, but we got to We got to let the child uh, care workers, which we appreciate. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll stick around for a few minutes. You can ask Steve some more questions if you want. Maybe Steve, if you went back there, that would be best to be by your books. Okay. Let me pray. God, we thank you for uh, Steve and Celesta and their ministry and what you're doing through them. And I just pray for them. I pray that they would be able to continue to do their ministry, uh, to be able to continue to mend souls, uh, be used by you to be an instrument of mending souls. Uh, And God, I thank you for David tonight and and his insight and his wisdom and um, just the great things that he shared about who your son is. Uh, And God, I thank you for your created order. And I just pray that people would understand that that, um, 
they're they're really just swimming against the current if if they want to take on your created order um it's it's a level of 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 uh of um of foolishness which i understand is couched in human wisdom um and i know how hard that is and so i just pray for the for the hearts and the minds of of those of us all of us who who try to press against that and i pray that you would redeem our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears to the truth the truth of your son, the truth of your gospel, and by the power of your spirit, we'd be able to do that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.